AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing, and what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live, and that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show. I'm Scarlett Fu with Mike Lynch and Michael Barr and a lot to talk about this week, especially since the NFL season is in full swing. Michael Barr, you've been watching very carefully because I know you have uh, a few dollars on the line here when it comes to football. There was a big bet this weekend that would pay out a huge amount of money. Michael, it, it sounds really complicated. Walk us through what it involved and, and what happened. Now, okay, for everybody out there, now if you don't know what a parlay is, this one was a 16-game parlay. What in does that words, mean? What does that mean? In other words, you're trying to guess the winner of each of the 16 games that took place in week two. Okay. So, you got through from the first game, then you go on through the Sunday games, and this better had 15 of them right. And then there's Monday Night Football, and the mighty Detroit Lions <laughs> take on the Green Bay Packers in Lambeau Field. There's Aaron Jones. Got it. Fourth touchdown of the night. For Aaron Jones. And see, the problem is the Lions don't have Aaron Jones. The Packers have <laughs> Aaron Jones. And that was the fourth touchdown. And this better, who laid down $25 on a 16-team parlay, had the chance to win $737,000, but the Lions did not come through. And first of all, and I, I feel for you. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. He put down $25 and he did not win $737,000, right. but he did get 15 of those bets in that parlay right. Yeah. So did he come out with anything? No. No. Nothing? Nope. nope. Just like a lot of emotional highs and one big low. Yep. Nope. Nothing. Yeah. Not a is, doggone thing. And, and that's the kind thing of emotional about torture. Parlay. It is. Well, that's the thing about parlays. It's you have to hit each one. Yeah. And uh, now it depends on, you know, a lot of ways you can do a parlay. You can do it with the point spread or you can just do it straight up. There are many ways you can do it. 
you you don't have to do a 16 team parlay. You could do a three team parlay. Okay, you can customize it. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Uh, but I don't understand why you bet on the Lions <laughs> in Lambeau Field, especially after. Well, you week would one. bar, right? You would. No, nope. I, I love my Lions dearly, but I'm not crazy. Well, okay, maybe after a couple of beers, but it's I'm not crazy. Yet the week one, Aaron Rodgers got benched. Now you're talking a Hall of Fame quarterback. He got benched, so you knew that week two. In Lambeau, they were going to come out with a vengeance, and they sure did. 35-17. Is this where um, sports betting is a game of skill and not luck? <laughs> Go ahead. Lynchy? I, I, I'm still angry about the Lions. <laughs> uh, it's, it's more skill than playing the lottery, without question. Yeah, because you do a little homework. There's a lot of research and analytics going on, and uh, it's, it's, it's easier to win betting sports than it is to win in Powerball or Megabucks. You know, when you say there's a lot of homework, um, there are different businesses that supply the data. And of course, mm-hmm. everyone wants their names to be affiliated with that. Uh, Jimmy Pataro, the president of ESPN, spoke with Emily Chang earlier this month. He was pretty tight-lipped in response to her question about whether ESPN would be licensing its name to a sports betting operator. But it's really interesting to see how far a company like Disney, which is the parent company of ESPN, has evolved on sports betting. I mean, Bob Iger, the CEO uh, back in the day, had earlier said in 2019 that he didn't see Disney getting involved in the business of gambling by facilitating gambling in any way, but um, partnering with companies that offered betting information was a different story. Do people make that distinction? I mean, between ESPN not being involved in gambling, but also offering uh, betting information or, or having its name affiliated with that? People go to the source that they trust the most, uh, who has given me good advice, good information that has translated into me winning a bet. Uh, there's also another part when you're betting on things, you 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 want someone just to support what you're thinking. Uh, I, I think I like the Lions. Validation. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And you might call 10 people. They say, forget it, forget it, forget it. And then you call Michael Barr and he says, yeah, take the points. And you say, <laughs> good. I feel good now. I'm going to lay in uh, 50 bucks on this game. But what, what this, this, this legalized gambling has done for viewership of NFL games you're going to see going on and on and on for like the first week that it was up seven uh, percent, I think, from 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 a year ago. People are hanging around to the ends of the games because they can, in the middle of the game, they can bet: Will I get a first down? Will, yeah. uh, will who will catch the next touchdown pass? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a bunch of guys last week that were watching a meaningless game because if they uh, there, were, there were three of them, they would have won nine hundred dollars if Michael Barr scored a touchdown in the last two minutes of the game. Yeah, we know that didn't happen. <laughs> so the, the the net effect is no game is ever meaningless. Every game is meaningful because of all the different bets that anyone could make, and you could do a sixteen leg parlay. You could do I don't know. 25-leg parlay. Could you do a 25-leg parlay, or you can't because there's only no, 16 games? No, there's only games. 32 teams, 16 games. Okay. So Michael Barr will tell you, if you have bet even $10 on any game and you lost, and it happened 30 years ago, you can recite every single thing that went wrong that cost you that 10 bucks. You know, at the end of the game. Like I, One time I remember I had, a, I had the over in a, in a Monday night football game, and the team was on the one-yard line. All they needed to do was get in the end zone and score six points, and I was in. They took a knee, and I'm screaming at the TV, screaming, get in the end zone, get in the end zone. I'm going to win 25 bucks. So you remember, and you hang around and you watch. And gentlemen, we're talking about the biggest stories in the world of sports right now. And one thing that's really caught my attention is all the 
attention given to Ken Burns' new documentary, Muhammad Ali. I have to confess, I never like watching boxing on television because <sighs> it's just so brutally violent. But the the stars of boxing really don't shine a light to the greatest, uh, Muhammad Ali. And he called himself the greatest. I mean, that's how he identified himself, right? I don't think that there's no heavyweight alive who, could, who couldn't beat me. I know there are none alive. And I, when I say greatest, I mean only boxing. See? In the Islamic religion, we have a saying, Allah o Akbar. Allah o Akbar means God is the greatest. So I'm not God. I'm just the greatest in the sport of boxing. Ali, not modest there at all, but that's, uh, that's why people love him. Yeah, Ali did boast. He was a little bit braggadocious about his talents. But you have to remember, during that time, too, is the time when he went from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, and there were a number of his political views and religious views. And at the time, a lot of people in the United States didn't take too kindly to it. Our good friend Jason Kelly sat down with Ken Burns, who was doing this documentary on Muhammad Ali, and he talked about some of the turbulence that went through for Muhammad Ali during that time. Comes out of the Rome Olympics with a gold medal. He's smiling. He's voluble. He knows how to talk to a camera and a microphone, and people love him. And then he starts bragging, and he starts saying how beautiful he is, and he does the things that athletes are sort of not supposed to do, and particularly black athletes are not supposed to do. And so there's a kind of step up, and people talk about before the first list and fight, let's shut him up, let's put him in his place. And you can hear the echoes of what that's about. And then he joins, after he defeats List, and he publicly joins the Nation of Islam, a separatist religious cult. You can't even call it a branch of Islam. It's, it's got its own problems, which we detail. Um, and then he, that's already been labeled by mainstream media as a, as a hate group. And there are aspects of it that are, are corrupt and, and hate-filled, and, and they are also the murderers of Malcolm X, one of their own, whom they expelled. And then, you know, he refuses... The draft, and that puts him at odds with a majority of American citizens, um, black as well as white, who are essentially supporting the war, at least initially, and he won't budge. He knows he could get a cushy job. He knows he'd be doing USO shows and making appearances and mugging with, with GIs. He's not going to do that. And it is stunning, and it brings out the worst, and it brings out the best. He becomes a hero on college campuses, a hero to a different new kind of black manhood, black masculinity that maybe a generation before Jackie Robinson embodied. Now he embodies, Jim Brown embodies. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderfully complicated story, and then he works his way back. You know, He's exonerated by the Supreme Court. He loses to Joe Fraser, but in the words of the sports writer Robert Lipsyke, he wins America because he's trying desperately to get back in the game, which he knows he's losing on points and he gets floored by Frazier in the last round, gets up, is willing to fight. He takes his defeat in a manly way, even though the lead up to the fight is he's, he's just uh, irresponsible in his treatment of, of Joe Frazier, calling him things that only a white racist would call another black man. And this is one black man to another. He's made Joe Frazier the, the hero of white America, and he's the hero, he believes, of black America. It's not his finest moment, but he's amazing at the end and, and begin, people by this time are beginning to realize, you know, he may have been right on Vietnam. Right. And then, 
Then, then he works his way, and when he wins back the championship for the first time, it's one of the most magnificent moments in the history of sports of all time. You cannot believe that this underdog did what he did. That was Ken Burns sitting down with our Jason Kelly. You can catch the entire interview right on our Bloomberg podcast page. You know what strikes me is how ahead of his time Muhammad Ali was because he was talking about these social justice issues that didn't win him a lot of fans in in some parts of the market and some parts of the world. But it was almost like he knew he was doing it for posterity. Yeah, uh, it's he he was a great marketer. Can you imagine he was a self-promoter if he (laughs) could do that today? God rest his soul. Names, image, and likeness. Yes. With Muhammad Ali. Oh my goodness! It's like I remember it was a big deal when he was selling decon roach traps. You remember that? It was mm-hmm. whatever it was. And now he today. And it, oh my goodness! He would he would be a, a multimillionaire twenty times over. <laughs> well, one thing about a Ken Burns documentary it it breathes and it goes in depth. And this documentary, I've watched three of the four episodes so far. Uh, takes him from the day he was born in Grand Avenue in Louisville, Kentucky, and then he loved boxing. Uh, he did graduate from high school. Uh, somebody didn't. Some teachers didn't think he should be awarded a degree. His principal says, "I believe in this guy. He's going to be a success, and so I'm going to uh, award him his degree." And then he went on. It's, as you said, he was a great marketer, Michael Barr. When he was fighting amateur fights and then became a professional, he would go door to door, knock on black. Uh, doors of black people and white people come on down to the louisville uh, boxing center on saturday night watch me fight the more people that showed up the bigger payday for, for cassius marcellus clay that was his born name went to the olympics won a gold medal in 1960 uh, then uh beat sonny listed in 1964 and all of a sudden he went from cassius clay a guy who who yapped an awful lot to one of the most popular and polarizing mm-hmm. people on the face of the earth but he used his popularity to fight bigotry, racism, unfairness, and injustice, everything that he had seen and experienced while he was growing up. Um, there was a the shot in this documentary about a carnival in town, and it was only for white people and white kids. And there's a shot of uh, all the black little boys and girls clinging onto the chain link fence, looking from the outside in as all the white children were inside on the Ferris wheel and all the amusements in the carnival in town. And, you know, it really struck a chord and it it, it really defined the fabric of Muhammad Ali, who he was and why he, to the day he took his last breath, fought for fairness and fought against injustice. Yeah, he became this global symbol of all these different conflicts and he became bigger than himself. Again, I go back to the idea that I am by nature not a fan of watching boxing. It's too violent. It's too, it's it's crushing the the physicality involved. But you see someone like Muhammad Ali and and what he was trying to do, what he was trying to communicate, um, and it it quickly becomes much bigger than boxing. Well, yeah, and and the thing about boxing is that you have to remember way back, from the 40s and the 50s, uh, the Gillette Cavalcade of sports, and you would see the, the boxing match every Friday night, and then go on to the 60s, obviously with Muhammad Ali. The 70s, it, you you would still could see a live boxing match on network TV. Yep. It, back then, you know, if you wanted to see it, it, they used to call it closed circuit. So 
then became the 80s and in pay-per-view and right and then then that's when i always wonder event television yeah I, i just i just wonder if that's the point when boxing lost that allure because you had to pay to see this event and it's not necessarily cheap it became a niche event a niche sport um and not a mass market sport well, he was on live television on Wide World of Sports almost every Saturday with Howard Cosell, and he would just build up every one of his fights. And you could—I mean, I, I only paid to see one of his fights, the Larry Holmes fight, late in his career. But many of them were on live television on on a Saturday afternoon, and you could just watch him fight Ken Norton on Wide World of Sports Saturday afternoon at four thirty. And he was just, you know, one of these most iconic figures of the of the in fact sports illustrated and named him as the uh, athlete of the century and uh, the many other publications and associations did the same thing we have a great set of guests with us today we're going to talk about saving the roar it's a documentary about penn state and i'm thrilled to have the director of this documentary uh with us mike nash as well as a former linebacker who's featured in this documentary michael mowdy Great to have you guys on. So glad you could join us. And Mike Nash, let me start with you because this is a film about the fallout from the Jerry Sandusky child abuse scandal. It's about the 2012 Penn State football team that confronted all these challenges and the obstacles and overcame them. Tell us a little bit about how you came to this story and why you decided to make this documentary. Yeah, hi. First of all, thank you for having um, myself and Michael Maudi on. Um, you know, this film came to me uh, from a Penn State alumni, um, Bob Evans, who sits on the board of Penn State. Uh, and, you know, we had been talking about the, the film Paterno that HBO came out with. And he said, you know, there's, there's, there's another side to this story, which I had never heard before. And he illuminated, you know, really what these players went through in 2012. And that, that was really the beginning of, of, you know, us starting to map this story out and outline it and try to figure out, you know, what was the best story to tell on this subject. Mike, 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 come on. You know, four mics here, you know that. Come on, that line had to go. You know that. Anyway, I, I have to ask this question, and there's so many ways to go with this documentary, you know, and I'll start with uh, Mr. Nash. The When you talk about college football, uh, you're talking about six or seven home football games. And the the town's small businesses, they really count on those. Can you expand more on that and, and what that means for the, the local businesses and the, the local money that goes into it? Yeah, I'm happy to. You know, this film basically, I mean, the core of this film takes place um, in the summer of 2012 and, and then the season. And it was shortly after the NCAA put these almost, you know, uh, death penalty-like sanctions on the university and and, and the football program that really began to cripple um, not only the program, but the, you know, the economic impact of of the town. And so I don't know if any of you have ever been to Penn State, but it's, it's not easy to get there. It's in the middle of nowhere. Right. So that community survives on those six or seven games. And, you know, if, if this team fell apart, and, there were, and, and Michael Maudi can get into this, but 
you know, there was an afternoon where Michael Moudy and Michael Zordage went to, just to add another Michael into the conversation. <laughs> uh, We're up Michael to five so far, everyone. Zordage, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, went to uh, Coach Fitz and Coach O'Brien and, you know, showed them a list where there were 30 or, you know, up to 30, 40 players that were leaving possibly that afternoon. If that happens, that program can no longer recruit. They probably can't even field a team at that point. And if those six or seven games don't take place, um, you know, I mean, if you look at the numbers, we're somewhere around 5,000 jobs um, in state college, you know, take place because of local tourism. Those jobs are at stake if, if this, you know, team doesn't move forward. Um, the football program, you know, brings in, I think roughly it's just under $800 million in tourist money that comes into that community. So there was a lot at stake besides just the football program. And in the film, you know, uh, Frank O'Hara states that these young kids, we owe them everything because they not only had the past of Penn State on their shoulders, they also had the future of Penn State on their shoulders. And that proved to be very true. Let's hear from one of the Michaels. Uh, Michael Zordich, he is or was a Penn State U defensive back. And here's what he said before the start of the 2012 season. Let's take a listen. As a team, we don't see this as a punishment. This is an opportunity. This is the greatest opportunity a Penn Stater could ever be given. We have, a, we have an obligation to Penn State, and we have the ability to fight for not just a team, not just a program, but an entire university and every man that wore the blue and white on that gridiron before us. We're, we're going to embrace this opportunity, and we're going to make something very special happen in 2012. So, Michael, um, you know, you're on the team. Uh, it was every single day there were satellite trucks, TV cameras all over the place. You're probably getting ready to play Purdue or Ohio State or somebody. At any point during all this turmoil, did you say, I'm out of here. This isn't worth it. What am I doing here? What was going through your head? <laughs> well, I think I think that thought was, was definitely, for a quick moment, was, was there. Uh, I think it was very quickly, though, uh, you know, me being a fifth-year senior, my dad had played there at Penn State. Um, Michael Zordich, another captain, was my roommate at the time. His dad played at Penn State. You know, we just very quickly uh, snapped out of that thought process and realized, you know, this isn't right, and we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, that they, we could hold this thing together. Um, now, at that point, we, you know, I had had 60 offers you know, literally the night, the day after the, the NCAA sanction, uh, where any player could leave at any point. And I think uh, a lot of people don't realize the, the gravity of having that ruling was in place the whole year. Um, so so you can imagine the difficulty in, in fielding and, and retaining a team throughout that year where, you know, we had jets at the airport waiting for us from every different school. Um, but I think it just kind of shows you the kind of, kids that are at Penn State, and, and uh, we just, you know, weren't going to sit by and, and let that culture, that community, um, really the community is what, when they rallied behind us and realized this just became much bigger than football. So your, your coach at the time was, uh, I know him quite well, Bill O'Brien. He came from the Patriots down there. Was was he the right guy at the right time for that situation? You know what? I, I'm not sure that he gets enough credit, and he probably wouldn't take it if you try to give it to him, but... Um, but we certainly couldn't have done, gone through that without him. Uh, he seemed to make every uh, right decision from a strategic crisis management standpoint. Um, 
you know, we were in the war room every night, literally like um, 11 o'clock strategizing on you know, how we were going to re-recruit our team and what we were going to do. I mean, I'm, there was conversations about, um, you know, literally from the drawing board, uh, we were going to have 20 guys, um, you know, discussing seceding from the Big Ten and we were going to do this on our own. You know, we were going to cut our own TV deal. It was just, you know, it was literally crisis management one-on-one. I don't think Bill um, deserves enough credit for the way he's handled it. I think he was you know, um, perfect for that situation. Mike Nash, let me turn to you first because you grew up a college football fan. You didn't go to Penn State, uh, but you learned a lot about Penn State and the economics of college football. And I'm wondering what the most surprising part of that was. Well, I think when you really look at the story um, and, and you realize that how close this program came in the summer of 2012 to, to ending, um, truly, you know, there, we, we call it the six weeks of chaos in the movie, but this program was truly upon its darkest hour. And if it wasn't for a group of, you know, millennials um, who came together and did not leave the university, I think the economic impact of State College, Happy Valley, um, I don't think Happy Valley would have been very happy. You know, the, 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 these six or seven home games are so vital to the economics and the economic impact of that community. Obviously, what happened with the Jerry Sandusky controversy, I mean, that just, it, all hell broke loose. But one of the people that got kind of caught up in this is head coach Joe Paterno. You're talking about a guy who had a, a stellar career, he had a stellar reputation, and all of it within those six weeks blows up. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it starts really in, in the mid-year 2011. Um, I remember, you know, we were sitting in our, right in our dorm rooms, and when we got the message, uh, we were, as a Wednesday, we were about to play Nebraska on a Saturday, and they, um, you know, and then, and then that meeting where Coach Materno addressed the team for the last time, um, you know, that, that's something I'll never forget, but, but, um, you know, me, myself being the legacy, the second generation, uh, product of, of coach Paterno's, um, really the culture and the ethos that he always preached and, um, uh, just hundreds of guys that have gone through that program and the impact that he's had on the, really the whole community and that university. Um, you know, you just can't really do, you can't say enough about that and the way the university handled it obviously is, um, you know, there's there's certainly feelings that that could have been handled better, um, but that's when the really the year before in 2011 was was when that turmoil really really just got started. Success is more than a destination; it's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success.
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Mike Mowdy, uh, when the season ended uh, and you guys were all together, was there a feeling of, like, we did it? You know, we put the finger in the dike. We stopped the dam from just uh, over, overrunning and, and Penn State football is going to survive? Or were you still unsure when the season ended? Well, I mean, in 2011, you, you got to consider that we, you know, we hadn't brought in Bill O'Brien yet. Um, you know, in February, I spoke at Coach Turner's eulogy of standing next to Phil Knight. You know, the whole community is kind of still reeling. Um, but then, but then we got through to to the summer of 12, and and uh, you know, we had basically like like Michael was saying, Nash six weeks of turmoil. When we had three weeks where we just nonstop were trying to make sure we could field a team. And and that's when we really, um, you know, came to recognize that the community depended on this us to play, and and we had to play on TV most importantly. And that's one thing Coach O'Brien always preached was, um, in hindsight, I realized how important that was, you know, for us to to play football and to play it on TV. And and that, um, I mean, you're talking about uh, hundred what is it, 175 million annually in that into that community uh, for seven home weekends. And without football, um, you know, we didn't realize at the time we were just 21-year-old kids. I think that's when it became clear that that football was really, um, you know, the vehicle to impact a lot of people. Yeah, you're playing for the school. You're playing for the town. You're playing for the state of Pennsylvania in many ways. I want to play a clip from New York Giants running back uh, Saquon Barkley um, talking about the significance of what this 2012 team managed to do when it did gather and, and decide to power through. The 2012 guys are sitting here. Um, the first thing I would say is thank you, um, you know, because now understanding the, the Penn State history and the tradition, um, how strong and rich it is, um, and just to think uh, from one mistake, all that could have been ruined. Um, and those guys, you know, stuck through it, and those guys were there um, when the program was at its lowest. And, you know, in my opinion, you know, just having the, the number up there, the year up there on the stadium is, is not enough. Stuck through it at the lowest point. Mowdy, you were drafted by the Vikings. You played for them for two years. You then moved to the Saints and you played 35 games for the Saints through 2017. How often did this idea that you and this core group of players um, endured through that 2012 season for Penn State? Is it something that, that you drew back upon in your professional career? Um, certainly, I, I, I don't think that, that it's, I could go through any, anything uh, in the future that could replicate that level of intensity and that level um, of meaning behind what you're doing in, in a season, and that that bond that you create uh, in a locker room where where this is all you got is just the guy next to you and the coaches next to you, and um, you know, it's just a true display of of what uh, loyalty really can mean and. And uh, commitment, and I think, I think that was uh, you know ten years ago almost. You had uh, basically the environment that you have now, where anybody could leave and and uh, you know the doors open. And so, yeah, I think it was just a truly special group. I'm, nothing really could ever replicate uh, the importance and the significance of um, you know playing for that much, uh, just just by putting on the helmet. That's for sure. Let's fast forward now. You're back in the days when you were 21, and now let's fast forward to about 10 years later. 
and you think about today with name, image, and likeness profits, can you imagine, Maudie, sir, what your life would be like? I mean, you probably would own seven car dealerships by now. <laughs> well, I certainly, <laughs> there certainly were a lot of 42 jerseys sold then. Um, <laughs> and, and um, you know, that's just, it's a different world now. And, and I think, I think a lot of, um, uh, shoot, a lot of programs are definitely taking a you know reactive approach and don't really have a plan uh, because this is the wild west now, and I've seen it and I've been working with, uh, well, I've certainly had a lot of conversations within the uh, at Penn State in particular, but but um, you know friends with different programs across the country, and I, I mean it's a new arms race basically to to engage the most capital in, in way of endorsements and and paying players to recruit and retain them uh, more so than it has been ever. So I think it's a totally new climate and it's certainly, it's certainly uh, something to pay attention to, you know, talking about 17 and 18 year old kids um, trying to manage and deal with a lot of characters coming around with a lot of money. And, um, you know, I think it's important that they got, they have good people around them to, to uh, help them navigate. Hey, Mike Nash, Mike Lynch up in Boston again. What, what's the what, what's the takeaway that you want people to to have? What, what do you want us to take away from this documentary? What's the common thread that runs throughout the whole the whole piece? Thanks, Mike. I mean, I think at the core of this film, it's it's really about overcoming adversity. It's a it's about legacy bloodlines, childhood dreams, and there's great lessons within this film and within what Maudie and his team did back in 2012. But I think our great lessons for, you know, everybody that's dealing with things that we're dealing with, you know, in our own lives with COVID and, you know, we, we've certainly gone through our own adversity recently and, um, you know, um, adversity that we didn't create very similar to that team in 2012. They had nothing to do with this. When all of this took place with Sandusky, these kids were four years old. Mm-hmm. you know, that we're now playing football for Penn State. Um, I, I think there's also a really wonderful lesson, not only for society, but for businesses as well. And, and Maudie can probably speak on this more eloquently than, than myself, but, you know, there's great value in the power of coming together um, as a team. And, you know, we live in a world where it's all about, you know, there's meism and and we're all focused on selfies and this and that, but, Man, when we can come together as a team, it's unbelievable the, the wonderful things that, you know, are inspired and created throughout that movement. So I think at the core of it, that's really what this film is all about. This film is about a group of millennials doing things that, you know, millennials traditionally aren't supposed to do. And if you like sports movies, if you like um, inspirational content, you know, if you liked Rudy or you know, <laughs> We Are Marshall, this film fits within that same realm. Mike Nash, i got to ask you about the funding for this documentary. Penn State has a loyal alumni base. Uh, Maudie can speak to that, of course. I wonder whether you had alums lining up to, to, to chip in or to be part of this experience of, of chronicling this 2012 team. And if not, whether they're coming out of the woodwork now. You know, we actually were told that this would be financed within a couple of weeks from everybody that we spoke to. And that just was not the case. 
Interesting. Um, we actually had a very difficult time funding finding funds for this. Um, you know, I mentioned Bob Morgan earlier. He was key to all of this. Um, but as the film started to get made and people could actually look at the type of film that we were talking about, look, the name of my company is Beverly Hills Productions. You know, I, I, I'm, I was living in Los Angeles at the times. Uh, the last time, you know, someone from L.A. made a movie about Penn State, Penn State wasn't really happy about it. So, you know, there was we were walking on ice a little bit when we first started out until they realized the story that we were going to tell. And I think Maudie can attest to this, too. When, when I first sat down and spoke with Michael, Michael had some other production companies that he'd been talking to. And when he asked me, he said, you know, how are you going to tell this story? I said, well, I'm not going to tell the story. You guys are going to tell the story. You know, there's, no gonna, there's not going to be any voiceover within this story. It's going to be told through the players and, and the coaches who were, who were there, who, who lived this. And I think we lived, you know, up to that statement. Um, but as, as people, from, to answer your question more directly, as people started to see this, you know, this is really catching fire now within the Penn State community and the college football community. We had the world premiere of the film on Friday night. Um, Kirk Herbstreet, you know, was there for game day. He introduced the movie after the movie um, finished, and he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to stay because there was a little bit of a timeline. But after the movie finished, Michael and I were sitting in front of him. You know, he had tears in his eyes. This film took him on a, on a, you know, on a journey probably as a player and as a father who has, you know, a, a child playing in the NFL. This is a very moving story for, for Kirk Herb Street. Um, I should also just share with you that anybody that is looking to view this film, it's on, you can go to savingtheroar.in.live, and that's in.live. Um, we have what is known as a kind of COVID-safe uh, home online theatrical release that's going to be going on for the next 30 days, six screenings a day. Thank you for that. That's that's really helpful information for anyone who does want to see it. Really appreciate your joining us today. Mike Nash is the director and producer of Saving the Roar, which chronicles the 2012 Penn State football team, uh, which powered through and, and, and put together a season in spite of the fallout from the Jerry Sandusky child abuse scandal. And also joining us is Michael Bowdy, former linebacker for Penn State and also for the Minnesota Vikings and New Orleans Saints in the NFL. That was a really interesting conversation we had with Mike Nash and Michael Mowdy. Uh, Mike Nash, of course, the director and producer of Saving the Roar, and Michael Mowdy, the former Penn State and uh, NFL linebacker. What did you guys think in terms of how it uh, how it matches up with your conception of the fallout on Penn State, the school, and the, the football program? Well, I remember covering that, and just like Lindsay, and I remember when that all jumped off, uh, and this is where I go back to the Joe Paterno days and how adored Joe Pa was. When all this went off, they literally, the students were, I don't want to call it a riot, but it was, they were, let's say, unrest. And there were news trucks trying to get the heck out of there. Uh, it got pretty scary for a second because the students were supporting Joe Pa. Mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about a guy who uh, it was an institution. So it's that was a, a really tough time. You know, um, I remember it very well because 
Bill O'Brien uh, was the perfect coach at, at at the right time, and and Bill grew up uh, pretty close to me here. He went to St. John's Prep, a Catholic high school. He went to Brown University, and he was Bill Belichick's offensive coordinator. And he said, "I'm going to take the job down there." And we all said, "Are you nuts?" I says, "You know, you can't win down there." I said, "They're going to take away scholarships. They've already forfeited bowl appearances, and there's going to be like a." gaggle of photographers and just running after you every single day asking question after question after question that you have no answers for and he said i think i'm the right guy uh, to, to get down and, and help fix this and as you heard from mike mowdy he was they lost their first two games they won eight of their last ten they finished six and two in the big ten and eight and four overall but more importantly he just calmed the storm he just turned the temperature down on the anger and the, the resentment. And finally, as, as you know, Mike Nash told us in the interview, when this all this happened, the players on that team were four years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, and, and, and Bill O'Brien is up here. And Bill O'Brien has a severely, severely ill child with cerebral palsy who takes up an awful lot of his time. And he went down there and, and you know, basically was you know, the... The sacrificial lamb, for better a better phrase, down there, and and he took it. And he eventually left for the Houston Texans, but he was that was my takeaway. And how much uh, they were looking for leadership, as you can tell, young young kids are always looking for leadership. And Bill O'Brien was the right guy. Yeah, and and a lot of the players showed a lot of leadership as well in in deciding to to stay and to play. I was really struck with what Mike Nash, Mike Nash said about the theme of overcoming adversity and coming together because that was the case for the football players, for the school, and for the entire town of State College, Pennsylvania, which of course is so dependent economically on the school and the football program, those six or seven home football games, bringing back the crowds. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for how that group holds together and what it shows to their future employers. Um, That idea that they did something they didn't have to do and they wanted to do. It's a little bit of a contrast, I feel like, too, um, to the corporatization of college football now. And, and I might be getting really um, opening the, the nest here um, and getting into trouble by saying a lot of this. But this idea that um, everyone is profiting off of name, image, and likeness. Yes, I know that college players have done a lot and they, they do deserve a lot of the money that comes to them that normally goes to the school. But this was really about playing for more than money. And for that 2012 football team, um, it brought them together. Well, it's, as Mike Nash said, it was a, the, the lesson in this documentary is uh, how you face adversity. Do you stand 10 feet tall at the moment of truth, or do you just say, I'll let someone else do it? Yeah. And these kids here, when, when, when Mike Mowdy said they had a meeting one night, 11 o'clock at night, and said 30 to 40 kids may be leaving the program immediately. Mm-hmm. And there are corporate jets lined up on that. They have a little airport in the top of the hill in, in, uh, at, at Penn State. And they're from other colleges who were just like, you know, picking, uh, picking the low-hanging fruit, picking players off that, that wanted to leave and go play for a school uh, because they didn't know what the future was going to hold. Were their scholarships going to be taken away? Would the football program close down? And these guys just, you know, all got together and, you know, just stood 10 feet tall. They galvanized. And because of then, Penn State right now is thriving. Um, that will always be, the, those incidents will always be in the rearview mirror, but there'll be tiny specks at some point. And someday, 2011, 2012 is going to be a long, long time ago. And you're right. Penn, we're talking about Penn State. I live in Pennsylvania. And it was mentioned Penn State is out in nowhere 
in in yeah. the state. Uh, in fact, you've got a sign that says "Off to Penn State." And you're like, "What? Okay, I, I still need GPS to figure out where I'm going." So that little area needs Penn State, yeah. and and the businesses there. That's huge for. Them. It's, in, it's geographically located in the exact center of the state of yep. Pennsylvania, and it's very hard to get to. You either have to go to Pittsburgh and drive, or you go to some other place. You go to uh, uh, Harrisburg and you drive, but you eventually get there. I've been there a couple of times for games. I actually went down just for a Wednesday press conference one time when Joe Paterno was there, and um, you're right. You know, you stay downtown, and I, I blew through the, uh, the town. One time we were driving at night, and I was staying in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And we oh, drove yeah. through State College, and we'd it's pitch black, so we just stopped and we get out of the car. It was like the Three Stooges. We looked at a sign and said, <laughs> Altoona, that way. We overshot it by 23 miles. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's an exciting film, and it's a story that needed to be told, and I'm glad that they were able to do that. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. All right. You know what it's time for. Huddle around the week. It's a brand new season for number of the week. We got a brand new set. Okay, well, we, I, we have a brand new chair. Okay, I just put on some clean socks, but we got a number of the week, folks, that you're going to love. And it's very timely okay. uh, as we talk about the Ryder's Cup. The Ryder oh. Cup. Oh! The first Ryder Cup was in 1927. Yep. It was won by the U.S. in Massachusetts at Worcester Country Club. The competition was four foursomes and eight singles matches. What was the final score? The United States, that was the one where uh, Ted Ray was at the end of his career uh, for the, uh, the United States won, uh, I'll say, 9-3. to three. Scarlett, your choice. Wait. 12 points. Ryder Cup is golf, and golf. I'm betraying my, my lack of knowledge on golf here. Um, I'll say the U.S. won. Lindsay, what did you say it was by? Well, there were 12 points up for grabs. The United States, uh, I said they, they win 9-3. to three. Okay, I'm gonna go with they won ten to two, because Lynchy always comes in pretty well and does pretty well on this. So <laughs> I just go one up. <laughs> See, you know what's messed up is that USA won nine and a half, written two and a half. So we both uh, win. It's a tie. It's it's uh, it comes a win. Yes, both of you guys come up on all right. stage. See, that's my strategy. Whatever Lynchy says, I'll just kind of tweak it a little bit. Yeah, but if we invoke the Price Is Right rule, Scarlett, you're out. Oh, you went see, over, man. <laughs> I remember that week, man. Remember that week that you were so close, you missed yep. it by like you know like two cents, and you were over. And it was like, well, I was close. It's like, ah, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, all right. Fortunately, we're not playing by prices right rules, so <laughs> right. we all win. Uh, hey, thank you all. You can catch this show on an Apple podcast Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, or, you know, because we're very flexible wherever you get your podcast. I'm Michael Barr, and you can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. And I'm Scarlett Foo. I'm on Twitter at Scarlett Foo 1T. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.